We thank you that we can praise your name forever. Guide us now as we worship you by hearing from your word we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. What gives you great joy? What gives you great joy? Is it a raise at work? Purchase of a home? Passing a course you thought you were going to fail? Birth of a child? What gives you great joy? And then, inversely, what robs you of joy? What takes your joy away? Something getting in the way of you doing what you want? An inconvenience that happens? Persecution? Even, we talked about this at staff meeting on Wednesday, even my announcing that God is calling Amy and I to other things. What robs you of your joy? Family tension? On Friday, I was on my way out for dinner with friends. I was going to pick up Amy first from work. Um, and uh, I kind of counted this. In the last dozen years, I've been hit 11 times in vehicles. It seems incomprehensible. First time was from a drunk driver on my way to my own small group after picking someone up. And, and uh, then they sued me after. And that was awesome, sitting in Discovery where I'm like, they were drunk, I was not. And I'm being sued. It all got tossed out. Um, and, and then, you know, I was driving uh, an old truck that my dad had had, that my brother had had, that I had had. It was an old truck. And people didn't stop for their stop sign. I nailed them. And uh, they were charged, of course, because they didn't stop for their stop sign. But, you know, I had broken ribs and truck was turned around. And then somebody gave me a PT Cruiser. Not that that was cool to drive in. And driving the PT Cruiser up to Durham and, oh, some people have owned that, sorry. And... And on the way up to Durham, uh, somewhere, I think just past Mount Forest, Dave Blatch, Ben Ackerman, who are here this morning, my son, all in the car with me, three deer run across Highway 6, and I hit the last one, slamming on the brakes, trying to avoid them, right? Cars are right off. I, I, no one's going to get in a vehicle with me ever again. Then I bought a truck, brand new Z71. In the six years I had the truck, it was hit seven times. Yeah, hard to believe, right? Like incomprehensible. Two weeks old. I'm in Switzerland getting dinner. I'm coming out and a guy's staying there. And I have parked this two-week-old truck as far away from anyone in the parking lot as possible. Like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. And he's got this big, massive truck. And he's like, is that your pickup? I'm like, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm like, what do you mean? And I go and just the back end is gone. I'm like, how is this possible? I'm parked in the middle of nowhere. He's like, yeah, and it was black and it was dark. I'm like, there's lights. Anyway, um, and then I got hit back in the, in the spring and... I got nailed by a young man, 19, going to school. He ran to the back end of the, of the vehicle and, and uh, very apologetic. And all the parts were taking a long time to get ordered. So the Friday before it was going to be ordered, uh, be fixed, it would be fixed on the Monday, the police were at my door because a city bus has run into the back of my truck and taken the truck. Yeah, yeah, incomprehensible, incomprehensible. So I sold the truck in September thinking, this is it, I'm done. And then Friday on the way to pick up Amy... A young woman didn't see my van and just decided to move into my lane and whoosh, the van. And uh, I mean, she was so sad. And so I just didn't see you. I said, no, I, I, I've heard this before. <laughs> um, my brother, I texted the pictures of my brother on, because then we were going for dinner. My brother was part of it and guys I've known for like 30 years. And he's like, this doesn't even make sense. And uh, you know, when the forklift hit it, after the bus had hit it, after it had gotten all fixed, 
because there was another accident in the middle of all that. Um, I wasn't in the vehicle for a bunch of these things, right? I, I, I'm just an innocent, anyway. Um, I don't know what robs you of your joy. On Friday, I just thought, Lord, in this moment, I got to choose joy. How is it possible that my van's first time it's ever been hit, now it's been hit, now it's a target because it's the only vehicle I own, um, right? And you got to choose joy. And, and how do you do that? What does that look like? What does Advent joy look like with inflation and increased costs and tightness of wallets? Maybe going through a struggle in your marriage, maybe going through a struggle with your children, maybe wrestling through whatever it would be that you're wrestling through. What does it look like? Luke 2 says this, verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The angel says, I am bringing you the best news possible. There's nothing like it, nothing like it. How is Jesus able to bring you the best news possible? How is he able to bring you Good news of great joy. To that, turn with me to John 16. John 16, beginning at verse 16, the verses will be up. John 16, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean? By saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? John 14 to 16 is Jesus telling the disciples he's going to leave. So you have Philip saying, you know, how, how can we follow you? Because Jesus says, follow me if we don't know where you're going. And Jesus tells the disciples he's going to show them the way. He's going to promise them the Holy Spirit. In the, just the preceding verses, in verse 8 of chapter 16, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He says, because, uh, about sin, because people don't believe in me, about righteousness, because I go to the Father where you can't see me any longer and about judgment because the prince, prince of the world now stands condemned. So he talks about the role of God's Spirit as God's Spirit is coming and what the Spirit of God will do. In these few verses here, just 16 and following, a little while occurs seven times. Repetition is important in Scripture. When something is said once, of course it's important, but it's said seven times here, a little while. And there's three theories Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to die and then be resurrected. One theory. Second theory, that he's talking about the time between resurrection and Pentecost. That he's alive, he ascends, and then Pentecost comes. He's talking about waiting a little while then. Third theory, he's talking about the time between Pentecost and his second coming. Well, note he says it will be brief. I think that's important in this. And I love verse 19 that Jesus knows what they're thinking. So what's he talking about here? Well, I'm going to suggest it's actually the first two combined. He's talking about the time between his death and the resurrection and the time between his resurrection and Pentecost. Why do I say both? Well, Jesus mentions here in the verses, in verse uh, 17, that he's already said he's going to the Father. 
Well, when does he go to the Father? Well, we know he says to the criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So likely in that moment, he is in the Father's presence. But after the resurrection in John 20, he also says to Mary Magdalene, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now there is he talking about the ascension. I'll get to this in a minute. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. So I believe here he's talking about both. He says, I'm going to die. They don't have any concept of what it means that there is a suffering servant, that the Messiah could die. No concept of that. And so I believe that they're talking, he's talking both about that, the time between the cross and the resurrection, and the time between the resurrection and Pentecost. Note verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That's what happened during the cross. The world's rejoicing. We've killed Jesus. They are mourning. They're scattered. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus here, I believe, referring specifically in this point to the cross, that they're going to weep while the world is rejoicing and they will grieve, but their grief will turn to joy because they will see him. And he compares him going through the cross as a woman giving birth to a child because at the end of the birth of a child through labor, there is a new creation. A child is born. Even though there's a great deal of pain, there's now rejoicing at the end. And here... He's saying, though there is going to be grief, what you're about to see is the birth of a whole new created order. Because you're going to see me in my resurrected self. And so though there's a time of grief, verse 22, you will see me again, I will see you again, sorry, and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You see, the world thought it was victorious, but Jesus was the victorious one. And I want you to know Jesus says that you will rejoice because I will see you. It's about God's action toward us. Now, the whole idea of, of, of labor is one we find in Scripture. It's found in Isaiah 26. It's found in Micah 4. Listen to this. Why do you now cry aloud that you have no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. So here you have the idea of rescue, of redemption, of God's work. And it's compared again to a woman in labor. I've been present when all four of our children have been born, Jill and Ivy, by C-section, emergency C-section, um, as they were only one pound and 13 ounces and two pounds and nine ounces the night they were born. Um, Abby was a quick labor. Ethan took a long time. Ethan was hours and 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 hours of labor. And nobody could have prepared us for it. And he was big. He was 10 pounds, 2 ounces. And the doctors kept saying to Amy she wasn't pushing. And she kept saying she was pushing. And at one point during the night, because I was, you know, you're trying to be a helpful spouse, right? Like, do you want a popsicle? Can I get you a drink? Yeah, 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 yeah. At one point she said, I don't think the baby's coming right now. And I think we need a break. I'm like, what? I think you just need to go for a walk for 10 or 15, like... 
take a walk. I just need to not hear your voice for a few minutes and, um, and come back in and be supportive in a different way. She didn't say it quite like that. I'm summarizing it, but that was the idea. The walk thing is very realistic. That is what happened. And, I, and, and I'm like, uh, and the nurse is like, it's probably best. Um, and so I went and took a walk. And, and, and eventually, Ethan's head popped out. And the doctors said these words that no woman wants to hear when she's giving birth. She, the doctor said, he's huge. That's exactly. And Amy's like, what? And, um, and it, it was an awful labor. It was terrible. And the birth was terrible. And then you get to hold Ethan, and it's glorious, right? Because he was 10 pounds, 2 ounces. We held a toddler in the beginning. Um, um, my dad doesn't like to hold newborns. So like, he's, honestly, it's no joke, because he's always afraid they're so fragile. He's like, I'll hold him. Like, that's, that's not a problem. But the joy that came after the labor, even though it was a long, difficult, hard labor. And note what verse 22 says. I will see you again. You will rejoice. No one will take away your joy. You're going to have a joy that no one can take away. You're going to have a delight that no one can rob you of. It's why the apostle Paul can say in prison, right, that he rejoices. I tell you again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I say it again, rejoice. Because he knew he'd met the risen Lord. And no one could ever take that away. It's why you can say as a believer to live as Christ and to die as gain. People can take whatever they want from you except one thing. They cannot take away your salvation. No one can ever touch your salvation. Is that not great news? No one can ever take away your soul. If you've been saved, you are securely saved by the power of God and the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. In that day... Verse 23, you will no longer ask me for anything. When they were with Jesus, they would ask him for things. Jesus, can you do this? Jesus, what about that? Jesus, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. The term ask here is found five times in the next few verses. Five times, just like previously seven times. In a little while now, five times ask is found. And here, in these five times, Jesus is saying something's going to be really different here. I'm going to ascend to the Father. This is why I think it's about both. Because I think the first few verses, he's talking about when the world is rejoicing and the disciples are grieving at the cross, and now I believe he's talking about the ascension and the time between that and Pentecost. And here, he says, you're, you're, the time's about to come when you're not going to ask me for anything anymore because I'm going to be gone. And he says, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, skeptics come to me all the time and they'll say that. Have you read that? I asked for, you know, a new house and God didn't give it to me. I asked for a new truck. God didn't give it to me. I, I should say, I asked to be accident free. God, God didn't give me that either. Um, right? Like, like all of a sudden people come up and they think that God is Santa and you're going to sit on his knee and offer you a wish list. And if you've been naughty, you don't get it. If you've been nice, you do get it. God doesn't work at all like that. I'll explain that in a moment. But he does say this. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Jesus says, there's about to be a big transition in history. Up until now, you've come to the Father asking. But now you will come to the Father asking in my name. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. So why we conclude our prayers in Jesus' name. 
We come now in the name of Jesus. This is one of the things that's about the establishment of the new order. As Jesus is coming through the throes of the cross to the resurrection and then to the ascension and leaves us with his spirit and his spirit comes, this is one of the things that changes greatly. We now pray in the name of Jesus. We now pray in the name of Jesus. And he says, when you do that and you ask and you receive, your joy will be complete because you'll know what the Lord wants to give you, the Father wants to give you because you're aligned with the Father because the spirit is in you. And you, still, you won't just be asking for frivolous things. You'll be asking for kingdom-aligned things. You'll be asking that God would save someone. You'll be asking that God would encourage someone. You'll be asking that God will provide for someone. You'll be asking that God will work in someone's life. You'll be asking that God will sanctify someone. You'll be thinking about kingdom things. Verse 25, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use that kind of language. And I will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to think that you're going to come to me and I'm just going to go to the Father. Now, he is our intercessor, but he's our intercessor in the sense that the accomplished work of Jesus Christ has so covered us that when the Father sees us, he sees his Son. He sees Jesus. So Jesus is saying, though you're praying in my name, you're still praying to the Father. And you're praying to the Father Directly. You don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else. The Father himself, verse 27, loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I come back to the Father and enter the world. I came, sorry, from the Father and enter the world. Now I leave the world. I'm going back to the Father. Jesus says, I want you to know that you're going to have direct access to the Father in my name. I want you to know that my shed blood, my accomplished work is going to be enough. That when the Father sees you asking, he's going to see me. And it's going to be, he's going to be treating you as if it was his very son asking. And he says, I want you to know that when that happens, the Father loves you. Because you've loved me. This is more than just the John 3, 16, for God to love the world, the general love that God offers to the world. This is the specific love that God offers to his children when he adopts you into his family. You're adopted into the family of God. You are the father's child. That is great news. You are the father's child. It's why Jesus can say you ask for anything and your joy will be complete because you're coming now to the father, asking him, it's why Jesus can say that you, he will see you again, you will rejoice, and no one can take away your joy. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. So just three things quickly. To pray in the name of Jesus, you realize he is God the Son. You're not just praying to a saint. You're not just praying to a prophet. You are praying to God the Son, the second person of the triune God. You are coming before him and praying. That is who you're coming to. Secondly, to pray in the name of Jesus you pray based on his accomplished work, that he's been crucified, raised to life again, and ascended. You pray based on what he's done. You come to the Father directly, and the Father sees you as his child. But you come based on the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, to pray in the name of Jesus, you pray the way Christ would pray. That's why this isn't a Santa list. The Spirit of God is in you to align you with the Father's will so that as you pray you're praying exactly what jesus would pray to the father himself do you pray like that
If you think of the last time you spent some concentrated time in prayer, how aligned is your prayer to the kingdom of God? And how much of it is just selfishness? How aligned is it to the salvation of others, the sanctification of others, the kingdom of God expansion? How aligned is it to what God is doing? How excited do you you get about God's kingdom coming? About people that are going to come tonight to a dinner, many of whom don't know the Lord, friends and family that we're believing God can save even tonight. To a dinner again in a couple of weeks for people that we walk alongside, more of whom so in that dinner are more marginalized and struggling that we believe God can grip their hearts and lives. To Christmas hampers that are going out. We're going to provide food for people, a lot of food and toys and show people dignity. But more than all that, we're praying opportunity to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And our prayer is aligned with that. How often is your prayer just aligned with the kingdom? And how often is it just about you? Just about you. It's like being power of attorney in some senses, right? When someone asks you to be their power of attorney and you sign up for it, and now you have to make decisions on their behalf, what are you trying to do in those moments? Well, I, I've met people who are in that place, and they very selfishly make decisions for themselves, especially if the inheritance goes to them. I've seen this. Right? Where they want to offer them the least care and the least whatever so that there's more money for them, even if the money's available. But I've seen some people who are powers of attorney who are excellent at what they do. And they may also be getting all the inheritance. But all along, as they talk to those that are caring for them, physicians, specialists, doctors, they're like, what's best for them? How do we help them? How do we walk alongside them? They're always thinking of what that person would want and what's in their best interest. John Stedman says, this is a great quote. To ask in anyone's name means to ask as though you were that person. Did you see that? To ask in anyone's name, in Jesus' name, means to ask as if you were that person. This means we are not to ask, sorry, this means we are to ask for what Jesus would want, what he is after, and not our own desires. Not our own desires. Well, verse 29, the disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things that you do not need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Verse 31, do you now believe, Jesus said? Really, this is it? Like I fed the 5,000, raised Lazarus to life again. And do you now believe a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home, you will leave me all alone, yet, not, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus is about to go to the Gethsemane. The disciples can't even stay awake while he's praying. Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. John's there, but at enough of a distance that people can't recognize him, though he's there at the cross. After he dies, they're found in a locked room for fear of the Jews. They're disillusioned, they're scattered. Why? Well, they thought Jesus as the Messiah who had fed the 5,000, who had raised Lazarus to life again, who had cast out demons, they assumed right now that he was about to usurp the Roman rule, that he was about to take on Rome. 
And man, if he could cast out demons and he could raise the dead and he could heal people, surely Jesus could take on Rome. He can, he can annihilate them. I mean, we know this. Even at the ascension, after his resurrection, what did the disciples say? Lord, are you at this time going to restore uh, the kingdom to Israel? Like, is this Israel's moment right now? You're alive. This is pretty cool. And Jesus says, no, I'm ascending. They're like, what? He said, wait, in Jerusalem, my spirit will come. And you'll get it. And you'll get it. It's just a little longer. Even, even at the ascension, they didn't understand. They assumed the resurrected Jesus now who had defeated sin and Satan and death, certainly he was going to take on the Roman Empire. They thought it was going to be at the cross, but it didn't happen there. Certainly it was going to happen in his resurrected body. Nothing could stop him. He had defeated all principalities and powers and authorities. Look out, Caesar, here Jesus comes. That's what they thought. And he ascends and says, I'm sending you my spirit. And they're like, yeah, he talked about that not long before he died. What in the world is going on here? Who is this Messiah? We're all confused. You see, Jesus wasn't just coming to save Israel from Rome. Jesus was coming to save humanity from sin and Satan and death. Is that not great news? And so often in our prayers, we pray those Rome-like prayers. So often when we come in Jesus' name, we're praying as if, you know, I've got this Rome in my life, God. When the issue is sin and Satan and death, and that's whom Jesus has come to deal with. So often we think the good news is something so small and packaged, and the good news is something so great and glorious. We, we think the good news is, I, I need a bit more money or I need a bit more lesson. I'm not saying God doesn't care about the intricacies of our life. He does. But so often, we just, we just kind of push God as, to, as if that's all he's come to do. God, I got a hangnail. Help. And God's like, whoa, there's this big sin issue in your life and I've come to deal with it. Satan's knocking at your door and I have defeated him. And death is there, but I have conquered death. And we need to pray in Jesus' name. Thinking about the fact that he has conquered sin and Satan and death. And you will have a joy. A delight. That the world cannot take away. Verse 24, you will ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. Because the enemy's main goal is to knock our prayers way down here. And Jesus says, let me lift you up to something higher. But the disciples were stuck on Rome. They thought that that was it. And they didn't want him to go. You see, Jesus knew something better was in store. Maybe that's why he said to Mary Magdalene that he wasn't to cling to her. She wasn't to cling to him, sorry. That's the idea of the, of the Greek there. She's just grabbed a hold of him. It's like someone that you haven't seen in a couple of years, and then you see them, and you just kind of grab them, and, and you didn't think you'd see them again. Maybe you just hold on to them, and you're like, hey, I'm here now, and I'm staying around. Jesus is like, hey, you're clinging to me, Mary. But, but if you cling to me, eventually we're, we're going to end up not being together. I'm going to go to a different town to continue to do this, or I'm going to do that. He said, it's better that I go to the Father 
Because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send my spirit, and my spirit is going to be in every believer. He doesn't tell her all that there. But that's what's going on. Mary, you can cling to me, but no matter how hard you hold on to me, eventually you're not going to always be with me. But when I go, when I ascend, when I go to the Father, my spirit's going to come, and he's going to be in every single solitary believer and grant you a proximity to who God is that's greater than any proximity you could have if Jesus was standing right beside you because he's in you. Is that not incredible? I mean, we start to think as if maybe the greatest thing would be, what if I was one of the disciples? No, the greatest thing right now is God's spirit is in you. He's actually in you. He's living in you. To grant you an alignment with what the Father wants, to let you know that he's not just come to defeat the Roman Empire, he's come to defeat sin and Satan and death. C.H. Dodd says this, and, and it is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men it owed its existence not to their faith courage or virtue to but, but to what christ had done with them and this they could never forget the gospel didn't expand because of them the gospel expanded because of what jesus did through them and did in them in that moment jesus is like do you believe verse 31 you're all going to be scattered in fact, when I ascend, you're going to think that i got to somehow, you know, come and defeat Rome. You're, you're going to be so confused, but then my spirit will be in you. And they'll realize that the expansion of the kingdom wasn't due to their courage, though they were courageous, wasn't due to their virtue, though they were virtuous, or their faith, though they were faithful. But the expansion of the kingdom will be based on what Christ has done in them. His spirit is in them. You see, the triumph song of the church will not be queens. We are the champions. The triumph song of the church will be worthy as the lamb who was slain. That is the triumph song of the church. It will not be what we have done. It will be what he has done. And that doesn't mean he doesn't call us to task, but he calls us to task based on his spirit in us so that because of what Jesus has done, the world can be changed. And when you're aligned with that purpose, you have a joy. A joy, a delight that the world cannot touch and can never take away. Because you know that what you're doing and how you're living is exactly what God's Spirit has asked you to do. And there's no greater way to live than that, ever. Quickly, verse 33, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. Jesus says, this isn't going to be easy. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you can have peace, although I'll be gone for a little while. You can have peace because you could ask for whatever you want in my name. You can have peace because the Father is going to hear you directly and his love for you is one that's adopted you into his family. You can have peace, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. You see, the Father so loved the world that the Son incarnated himself, born of a virgin, lived 33 years, dies on a cross, sinless, having never sinned. Sin, Satan, and death, throwing everything they can at him and being unable to defeat him. And three days later, him being raised to life again, ascending to the Father and granting us his spirit. His spirit is in us. That is good news of great joy, isn't it? Good news of great joy. 
It's why Jesus can say without any hesitation, I will see you again, you will rejoice. No one can take away your joy. It's why he can say, ask and you will receive. Your joy will be complete. I got a text earlier this week because I've been watching God work in a number of lies from some people that said, hey, um, before you're gone, can you do a few baptisms? There's like four of us that are thinking about being baptism, baptized. Great news, good news of great joy, isn't it? That's exciting. That God's been at work in people's lives and they want to declare what God has done in their lives publicly because of the power of God. That is good news of great joy. You see, good news of great joy is the best news possible. It's the light in what God has done. And what does the angel say? He brings us good news of great joys for all the people. He says this, because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah or Christ the Lord. He is the Savior, the one who dies for us, the one that allows us adoption into the Father's family, the one who allows us to ask for anything in his name. And because it's in his name, if it's aligned with what the Father wants, God is going to grant it. And why is this possible? Because he is Christ the Lord. He is the one of whom all the Old Testament spoke and promised. He was the one of whom everything finds its fulfillment in. And he is the Lord. And because he's the Lord, he will make sure that what he has set out to do, the task that he has come to do, it will be fulfilled and it will be accomplished. It's why he can cry out on the cross. It is finished. He can cry it out because he is the Lord on the cross. And because he's the Lord on the cross, when he cries out, it is finished. Everything he came to do, he accomplished. And it's why our victory song will not be we are the champions, but rather will be worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It is good news of great joy. Jesse, can you come up while I pray? We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came. You lived among us. We thank you that you never sinned. We thank you that we can now pray in your name. And Father, we thank you that we can come before you directly because of your love for us. You have adopted us into your family. We are children of the living God. We are daughters and sons of you, the Father. Jesus, thank you for making that possible. And Spirit of God, thank you that when Jesus ascended, you came into us, God the Spirit. You indwell every believer when they are saved. For that, we are eternally thankful. So align our lives with yours. May we realize a joy no one can take that is completed as we see you answering the very prayers to which you long to accomplish the answers for. And may we rejoice in what you're doing, we ask in Jesus' name.